Deep in her heart, Jeanne de la Motte always knew this day would come. A pair of burly men in bailiff uniforms burst through her door. After a lifetime of swindling, conning and cajoling, her debts had finally come due. She was cornered. An ordinary woman might have surrendered, but Jeanne had never been ordinary. Instead, Jeanne slipped into the role of gracious host and offered the bailiffs a glass of wine. Though they were clearly not there for pleasantries, they accepted the offer, so Jeanne left to fetch the glasses. The men should have known not to let Jeanne out of their sight. After all, this was a woman who had slipped through the fingers of the French monarch. Instead of retrieving the wine glasses, Jeanne did what she'd done her entire life. She made a leap of faith. But this leap would be her last. She escaped into a nearby house, locked herself into a second-story room, and improvised a barricade. The bailiffs, realizing their mistake, chased after her and crashed through the doorway just in time to see Jeanne jump out of the window. Welcome to Con Artists, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. Every week, we peel back the layers of history's greatest deceptions and tell the stories of the hustlers, swindlers and fraudsters that orchestrated them. I'll dive into their psychology, break down their tricks and explain why anyone might fall for a con. You can find episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Con Artists for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. This week, we'll track the rise of the French adventuress Jeanne de la Motte. We'll see how she manipulated a French nobleman and literally rose from rags to riches. Next week, we'll follow Jeanne as she pulls off one of history's most elaborate cons. It was a scheme that involved forged letters from Queen Marie Antoinette and an extremely expensive diamond necklace. Jeanne de la Motte was an 18th century French confidence artist. She was born into an impoverished family, but duped her way into high society by leveraging a distant relation to a king. With the help of her husband and her lover, Jeanne conned a French nobleman into believing he was exchanging letters with Queen Marie Antoinette. Jeanne then parlayed this into a massive financial windfall. Hoodwinking the royal in such a dramatic fashion ultimately contributed to the fall of the monarchy and hastened the French Revolution. But before Jeanne de la Motte was a con mastermind, she was just a scrappy girl struggling to get by. Jeanne du Saint-Rémy was born on July 22, 1756, in a tiny village in Champagne, France. Jeanne's mother, Marie Joselle, was a housekeeper. 
Her father, Jacques, was a distant descendant of King Henri Valois II, who ruled France from 1547 to 1559. Jeanne's life would have been very different if she had been born at the height of her family's power. But 200 years after their rule, any inherited wealth was long gone. Anything Jeanne wanted, she had to obtain on her own. And what she desired most of all was a life of luxury and leisure. Psychologist Lan Nguyen Chaplin, Ronald Paul Hill, and Deborah Rhoda John write that Impoverished children are more inclined to rely on material goods to feel good about themselves than their wealthier counterparts. This certainly seemed to apply to Jeanne, who grew up destitute and likely sought to boost her self-esteem in adulthood with material wealth. She'd felt she had been cheated out of a charmed life, and with no cushion of wealth to fall back on, she learned from a young age that she had to look out for herself. And that is what she did. Jeanne was described as a feisty child. She took care of herself from a young age, and that was for the best. Neither of her parents seemed up to the task. Jeanne and her siblings, Jacques, Marianne and Marguerite, wandered around their village naked, often relying on neighbors for food. The saint remis were barely getting by for all of Jeanne's life. But 1759 was a particularly lean time. Their debts to local merchants had been mounting for years, and the family had no means to pay them. Their only option was to flee their creditors in the small town of Fontette, a move Jeanne would later employ on several occasions. The Saint-Rémy's were so impoverished that they were forced to make their escape on foot. Marianne, the youngest of the children, was too small to make the journey, and was left behind with a godfather. However, little Jeanne walked the nearly 124 miles to Paris at just four years old. Once in Paris, Jeanne was sent out every morning to beg for money to support the family. She and her siblings asked passers-by to take pity on them as orphans descended from royalty, presenting genealogical charts to bolster their claims. This was a desperate move during a desperate time, but soon, young Jeanne's life would get even bleaker. When Jeanne was five years old, her father was abruptly thrown in prison. Sources disagree on the reason, but it may have been for an unpaid bakery bill. His body was already ravaged by alcoholism. He never recovered from the ordeal and died shortly afterward. After her father's death, her mother moved the children to Versailles and quickly remarried. Marie's new husband, Jean-Baptiste Ramon, was greedy and abusive. He continued sending Jeanne and her siblings out to beg, but now, if she didn't return each day with ten sous, she was forced to sleep in the streets. This was a tall order, as that was more than many full-time laborers made in a day. Ultimately, Jeanne spent many nights curled up on cold cobblestone. Eventually, Jean-Baptiste moved back to Paris to chase a new money-making scheme. Marie left soon after to see him off, assuring her children that she would return within a week. But they never saw her again. Though Jeanne had always been independent, now 
she was actually alone, an orphan. Six-year-old Jeanne continued to beg on the streets for several weeks. Then, one fateful day in 1762, her fortunes finally turned for the better. The Marquis and Marquise de Boulanvilliers happened to pass her by and stopped their carriage for the six-year-old girl proclaiming to be the last of the royal Valois bloodline. The nobles took pity on the orphan children and decided to take in Jeanne and her siblings. Eventually, the Boulanvilliers sent the children to boarding school for a proper education. But shortly after arriving, Jeanne's sister, Marguerite, caught smallpox and died. While the Boulanvilliers fled the pox, the headmistress took advantage of their absence to make Jeanne into a kind of servant. Jeanne was hurt by this mistreatment, but not as much as she was insulted by the labor that she felt was so below her station. As she said, The noble blood of the Valois flowing within my veins opposed, like an indignant torrent, such degradation. But young Jeanne could only suffer this indignity for so long. The Marquise rescued her from her servitude, but she wasn't delivered back into the lap of luxury like she had planned for. Instead, the Boulanvilliers forced Jeanne to become an apprentice to a seamstress in the hopes that she might learn a respectable trade. However, being respectable and supporting herself didn't much appeal to Jeanne, and she frequently feigned illness to avoid work. She dreamed of having servants to wait on her, but for now, having nurses at her sickbed would have to do. Despite their aims to introduce her to honest work, the Boulanvilliers also helped Jeanne get one step closer to her fantasy of living as a royal. They petitioned a genealogist to confirm Jeanne's royal ancestry, and ultimately Jeanne's sense of superiority was vindicated. The blood of King Henri II did indeed flow through her veins. In December 1775, the king granted 19-year-old Jeanne and her brother Jacques modest pensions of 800 livres per year, about $9,000 today. The pension meant Jeanne no longer had to rely on the generosity of the Boulanvilliers, but she wasn't grateful. Quite the opposite. Jeanne described the sum as trifling. The pension was enough to support a modest lifestyle, but for Jeanne, modest was not acceptable. Soon, Jeanne would realize that she would need to latch onto someone else as a means to live out her opulent ambitions. At age 23, Jeanne met Nicolas Dulemotte when they performed together in a local play. Nicolas wasn't the sharpest, but he was lively and good-humored, and Jeanne took a liking to him right away. The pair began seeing more of each other, and in short order, Jeanne became pregnant. Within the strict standards of 18th century propriety, Jeanne had no choice but to marry Nicolas. Both of the lovers had hoped to advance their stations through marriage, but as fate would have it, neither achieved that goal. Each was saddled with the other. In that way, perhaps they were the perfect match. Jeanne and Nicolas married at midnight on July 6, 1780. 
It was a shotgun wedding with the barest of silver linings. It provided the appearance of respectability, however superficial. Shortly after the wedding, Jeanne gave birth to twins, who sadly only survived a few days. Her primary reason for marrying Nicolas was to legitimize her children, and though the infants didn't survive, she was stuck with him for life. But the marriage wasn't entirely without benefit. It provided them the chance to reinvent themselves. Without any claim to wealth or property, the Dulamots renamed themselves Comte and Comtesse, the equivalent of Count and Countess. These false titles were an easy way to elevate their status. Jeanne's husband wouldn't be her ticket to the high life, but he would be along for the ride. And soon, their path to the top would go through Cardinal Prince Louis de Rohan. Louis de Rohan was a French nobleman whose family traced their lineage through the ancient kings of Brittany. In the French court, Rohan ranked just below the royal family. He was the perfect entry point for Jeanne to weasel herself into French high society. But in a sea of potential marks, Rohan stood out for one key reason. He was on bad terms with the Queen. This was a glaring problem for the insecure diplomat. He desperately wanted to raise his political standing, but could not do so without the Queen's approval. But where Rohan saw an obstacle, Jeanne saw an opportunity. Coming up, Jeanne de Lamotte weasels her way into French high society and lays the foundation for the scam that would bring about the fall of an entire monarchy. Now back to the story. In September of 1781, 25-year-old Jeanne de Lamotte and her new husband Nicolas moved to Versailles, home of the French royal court. The city was brimming with the rich and powerful, and Jeanne quickly zeroed in on a prime target, Cardinal Prince Louis de Rohan. Like Jeanne, Prince Rohan was born into a family of noble blood. But unlike Jeanne, Rohan's family had held on to their wealth and power, setting him up for a life of comfort. Rohan had a charmed childhood, and as soon as he came of age, he was guaranteed a career as the Prince Bishop of the Roman Catholic Church, a cushy political position that was more ceremonial than functional. He was intelligent and attractive enough, but because Rohan had had everything handed to him, he lacked the discipline to rise much further in French court. However, a black mark on his diplomatic record was the real barrier that kept him from realizing his dreams of upward mobility. Rohan had committed an unforgivable political faux pas with France's own Marie Antoinette. During the 1760s, Rohan opposed Marie Antoinette's marriage to the heir to the French throne because the match was arranged by one of his political adversaries. When Antoinette ultimately became Queen of France in 1770, she did not forget Rohan's opposition, ever. The Queen proved a powerful enemy and effectively halted his political career. It was a well-known fact in court and Versailles high society 
that Marie Antoinette harbored disdain for the cardinal prince, and Rohan, in turn, was desperate to be in her good graces. This vulnerability made him easy prey for Jeanne de la Motte's schemes. Frustrated ambition, combined with low work ethic and high self-image, might have led Rohan to jump at any easy opportunity to win the Queen's favor. Because life always had a tendency of going his way, Rohan believed things ultimately would work out in his benefit. And while this kind of optimistic belief certainly isn't a bad thing, it can be exploited by the wrong kinds of people. Psychologists Joanna Sturick and Caroline Keating conducted a study of self-deception in competitive swimmers and found that those who were best at self-deception were also more likely to excel. It's a boost that the researchers attributed to reduced stress and increased confidence. Essentially, a little delusion can go a long way. But ironically for Rohan, his visions of grandeur helped give Jeanne an opening to take him for a ride. In addition to susceptible personality traits, Rohan was in a prime position to be taken advantage of. His role as Grand Almoner meant that he was in charge of distributing alms to the poor on the Crown's behalf. In short, Rohan was the perfect mark for a con. In 1781, Jeanne was 25 years old, a young woman in full command of her feminine wiles. A former lover of hers, Jacques Bugnot, wrote, She had defied the law and hardly respected morality. This created a frightening hole for the observer, which was seductive for the class of men who did not look too closely. However, when Jeanne first met with Rohan to plead her case for arms, her charms didn't get her far. He essentially dismissed Jeanne and provided her with nothing more than empty promises of assistance. It seemed Jeanne was unable to bend Rohan to her will, but she didn't give up easily. Jeanne and Nicolas soon left Versailles, but returned the following year. In the spring of 1782, Nicolas obtained a commission in the French army, and the couple moved to Versailles to be closer to his post. Jeanne and Nicolas had been granted another chance in the city, but this time they planned to milk Versailles for all that it was worth. At the time, Versailles was where royals and nobles congregated, and so was always a center of power and there was always a long line of hangers-on ready for a chance to snatch some of this affluence for themselves. Jeanne and her husband joined this queue of hopefuls, but they did not intend to wait their turn. Returning to Versailles meant that Jeanne got another bite at the apple with Prince Louis de Rohan, and this second meeting proved far more fruitful. When Jeanne met Rohan to plead her case for a larger pension, he was moved by her story of her impoverished childhood and forgotten royal lineage. Rohan advised her to arrange an audience with the Queen and to make her case directly. He apologized that he couldn't be more helpful with this due to his contentious relationship with Marie Antoinette. But despite his lack of access to the Queen, Rohan proceeded to make inquiries on Jeanne's behalf. Clearly, 
Jeanne's story had made an impact on the Cardinal Prince, but unfortunately, his efforts to loosen the purse strings were thwarted. The treasury he found had been depleted by supporting the American Revolutionary War. Jeanne continued working on Rohan, wielding her Valois family name as a means of establishing a shared connection and generating trust, an essential step in any successful con. They took pleasure in each other's company, and as they grew closer, their relationship shifted from officer and petitioner to something much warmer. Just how warm their relationship became is a matter up for some interpretation. Most historians seem to think it likely that Jeanne and Rohan's relationship progressed to the carnal, at least briefly. Rohan was something of a womanizer, and Jeanne was determined to use any tool at her disposal, including her body, to achieve the fabulous lifestyle that she believed she deserved. The letters that Jeanne and Rohan exchanged grew increasingly fiery, but as hot as their affair might have burned, for unknown reasons, the fire quickly extinguished itself. However, the pair remained close after their physical relationship ran its course. Rohan continued to assist Jeanne in any way he could, which included providing financial support. Though Jeanne once again had the aid of a wealthy noble to lean on, Rohan's support was not enough to keep up the lifestyle to which she had become accustomed. To bridge the gap, the Dulamots needed to maintain their relationships within high society's inner circle. Surrounding themselves with the rich only increased their chances of obtaining money themselves. After all, wealth breeds more wealth. However, access to the creme de la creme meant blending in. So in order to maintain appearances of status among their aristocratic neighbors, Jeanne and Nicolas resorted to desperate measures. They were forced to buy food on credit and pawn their best clothing for quick funds. Their belongings were constantly in danger of repossession, so they devised a workaround. They hid everything they owned with friends. When the bailiffs came to collect, they were met with empty rooms. Two years later, in 1783, Jeanne was 27, and she and Nicolas were barely hanging on to their appearance of high status. With their debts far outbalancing their pensions, the Dulamots desperately needed a break. Jeanne finally got a much-needed opportunity for fast cash when the king's sister, Madame Elisabeth, agreed to meet with her. Again, Jeanne's strategy had evolved. She had come a long way from the six-year-old girl begging on the streets of Paris. This time, when she had her audience, she wouldn't waste her time with intricate genealogy charts or flowery language. She would make a clear, undeniable case to the king's sister, and she would do it without saying a word. As soon as Jeanne met Elizabeth, she fainted. The collapse was a ruse designed to generate maximum sympathy. 
Jeanne assumed the wealthy madame would send payment as a token of her concern. And she wasn't wrong. Once Jeanne had arrived home after her interview, she enlisted one of her servants in the next step of the ploy. If Elizabeth sent a doctor to inquire after her health, the servant was to say that Jeanne had a miscarriage and was bled five times. Madame did send a doctor and a small sum of money in a show of sympathy. This wasn't near the amount Jeanne was hoping for, but she didn't falter. Several months later, Jeanne's supposed friendship with the Madame paid off. The finance minister nearly doubled her annual pension to 1,500 livres and even threw in a one-off gift of almost 800 livres. Today, this would come out to around $17,000 and $9,000, respectively. The exact reason for this sudden increase is not completely clear. Though Rohan's influence may have come into play, it's more likely that chatter about Jeanne's close relationship with Madame Elizabeth contributed to her windfall. The fact that there actually was no close relationship between the two of them made no difference to Jeanne's bottom line. Predictably, Jeanne was still unhappy with the new pension. The infusion of cash had quickly disappeared to pay off various debts, and she found herself in need of more funds yet again. The quasi-success of her fainting spell with Madame Elizabeth prompted her to give the same scheme another try. But this time, if she wanted to pay her way out of debt and truly live in the lap of luxury, she would need to target bigger game than just tertiary nobility. Desperation was making Jeanne bold as she contemplated her options. She would have to aim high, she decided. The highest. On February 2nd, 1784, 28-year-old Jeanne de Lamotte visited the Grand Hall of Versailles. She carefully positioned herself and repeated her fainting performance just as Marie Antoinette passed by. But the young monarch didn't even stop walking to see what had happened, let alone to check whether Jeanne was all right. This was a lesson learned for Jeanne. If she was going to pull one over on the Queen of France, she was going to have to think on a much bigger scale. Up next, Jeanne plots the affair of the diamond necklace. Now back to the story. By 1784, 28-year-old Jeanne de Lamotte had risen from a beggar on the streets of Paris to a well-kept woman with a household of servants. Or at least, that's how it appeared. Jeanne and her husband, Nicolas, went through great pains to keep up the illusion of wealth through various small-scale schemes. But now, Jeanne was about to break through into the big leagues. And that meant she needed a true co-conspirator. That winter, Jeanne recruited Reto de Villetta for her plans. Villetta was an old army pal of Nicolas. He was also a bit of a scoundrel. He served on a local police force but was chased out of town after insulting a young woman in front of her parents. But all of this was inconsequential to Jeanne. 
she was most interested in Violeta's experience in forgery. Three years previously, when they first met, Prince Louis de Rohan had unknowingly revealed to Jeanne a huge weakness. Queen Marie Antoinette hated him, and he was desperate to get back into her good graces. Successful con artists often have an uncanny ability to discern soft spots like this and offer the perfect solution to their mark's problems. Social psychologist Maria Konnikova said of con artists, they can read our background, our beliefs, our emotions, even the desires we thought we'd hidden so well. In this case, Rowan had done half of the work for Jeanne. She already knew what Rowan wanted, reconciliation with the Queen. Now, she just had to devise a way to mend the Prince's relationship with Marie Antoinette, or at least to make it seem like it was mended. Once Jeanne convinced Rowan he was in the Queen's good graces, he would be putty in her hands. Through the Queen, Jeanne could manipulate him to do anything she wanted. In 1784, Jeanne began a delicate dance with Louis de Rohan. It started with a familiar scheme, claiming a close relationship to a powerful person that she had no connection with whatsoever. But this time, that person was none other than Her Majesty Queen Marie Antoinette. The stakes were higher than ever. This time, her life was on the line. Jeanne would have to do everything perfectly or risk the guillotine. To back up her story, Jeanne used her previously fabricated relationship with the princess, Madame Elizabeth. In the privacy of Rohan's office, Jeanne relayed her story in hushed tones. She told Rohan that the Queen had seen her talking to Elizabeth about her troubles and invited her for an audience. As the former lovers sipped wine, Jeanne shored up the lie with a description of the Queen's private rooms. In truth, Jeanne had no idea what the rooms looked like. But because virtually no one was allowed in, she reasoned that he wouldn't challenge her description. Rohan fell quiet for a moment. He was skeptical. Jeanne could see it on his face. But she simply doubled down. She flashed an expensive-looking ring at Rohan, claiming it was a gift from the Queen. But in reality, Jeanne had liquidated her pension to afford the jewellery. She knew that Rohan would want a piece of tangible proof, something to back up her claimed relationship to Marie Antoinette. But though her story was improbable, Rowan didn't think it was impossible. After all, the Queen was known to have occasional fits of generosity. Jeanne could have been one of the lucky recipients. And of course, part of Rowan wanted to believe that Jeanne had an in with the Queen. He assumed Jeanne could use her relationship to his advantage. This was exactly what Jeanne was counting on. Rohan didn't realize that he was the one being used until it was too late. As soon as he was convinced of Jeanne's friendship with the Marie Antoinette, Rohan leaned in and sheepishly asked Jeanne to sing his praises to her. 
Jeanne slowly sipped her wine, pretending to consider the request closely. It was important that she play tentative, as if she truly did have a relationship with the queen delicately hanging in the balance. Then, she deftly managed his expectations, leading him along. Of course she would help him, Jeanne said. They were friends, after all, but this couldn't be rushed. They had to take their time. Soon, Jeanne had completely turned the tables on Rohan. When she first met him, she was desperately petitioning him for assistance. Now, he was the one begging for her attention and favor. But Jeanne couldn't pull off a con of this magnitude with just her husband. This is where Reto Duvilleta, Nicolas' friend of dubious morals, came into play. Because Villetta was a skilled forger, Jeanne recruited him to write letters to Rohan as if they were from the Queen. Jeanne employed every tactic at her disposal to ensure that her plan went off without a hitch. When Rohan doubted the Queen favoured Jeanne, she even produced letters, allegedly from Marie Antoinette, that were addressed to my cousin, the Comtesse du Valois. She had Rohan, Hook, Line, and Sinker. Now, it was time to reel in the catch. In her next step of the ploy, Jeanne told Rohan that she had spoken to the Queen about him. It took weeks of singing his praises, but finally, she'd convinced Marie Antoinette to allow him to write to her. Rohan was thrilled at the opportunity and quickly did just that. In a long letter to the Queen, he apologized effusively for his past wrongs. And then, he waited. Jeanne let the Cardinal Prince stew. Then, finally, after what seemed like weeks to Rohan, Jeanne delivered a forged reply a few days later. The response was warm. The Queen had gladly accepted his apology, and Rohan was elated. This had been his greatest desire for years. Con artists can make any social context work in their favor, but the 18th century was a particularly good time for swindlers. This was in large part due to the predominance of letter writing. The written letter was, and remains, a powerful tool for manipulation. Letters feel personal and real, but they are open to interpretation and can be more of a reflection of the reader than the writer. This is the trap that poor Rohan fell for, but Jeanne wasn't done with him yet. At Jeanne's request, Villetta forged a new series of letters from the Queen. The letters asked Rohan to facilitate charitable donations on her behalf while she sorted out some financial issues. At first, Rohan was thrilled at the opportunity to build a relationship with the Queen by doing her a favor. However, he completely failed to notice that as he was funneling more money to the Queen, Jeanne, was buying more fineries. Soon, the letters to and from Marie Antoinette started to become more and more amorous. Rohan was floored. He couldn't believe what he was reading. For years, his prospects had been poor, and now he had the lusty affections of the Queen of France. 
It was almost too good to be true. Rohan immediately became desperate to set up a meeting with Marie Antoinette in person, eager to spark what he thought may become a royal love affair. For months, Rohan waited for a reply to his daring request to rendezvous. And all the while, Jeanne was stalling, struggling to find a way to pull off what seems like an impossible feat. Setting up a faux meeting with Marie Antoinette was out of her depth. Meanwhile, the long delay was making Rohan grow suspicious that Jeanne might be stringing him along. But she wasn't about to give up on her scheme. She had Rohan wrapped around her finger. She just had to seal the deal. Then, in August of 1784, the 28-year-old Jeanne came up with an even more audacious idea than forged letters. She'd forge the Queen herself. In the gardens of the Palais Royal, an area akin to the Red Light District, she found a sex worker who greatly resembled Marie Antoinette. The woman was 32-year-old Nicole Legay. Jeanne offered Nicole 15,000 pounds to do a favor for the queen. Nicole was shocked and overwhelmed. She didn't know how or why she was chosen, but she knew that she could not refuse. It was imperative that Nicole not know the extent of their plan. Otherwise, they could risk the guillotine. So Jeanne simply stressed to the young woman that the details of the favor were not important. All she had to concern herself with was fulfilling her civic duty. Jeanne would take care of the rest. And with Nicole's agreement, the last piece of the puzzle clicked into place. The next day, Jeanne and Nicolas took Nicole to Versailles. They spared no expense grooming and dressing her. Meanwhile, Nicole was bursting with anticipation. Jeanne assured her that all she had to do was hand a letter and a rose to a man, and she would receive more money than she had seen in her entire life. It was an impossible offer to turn down. Jeanne was counting on it. While Nicolas placed Nicole into position in the gardens, Jeanne did the same for Rohan. Rohan was both anxious and relieved to finally have a face-to-face -face meeting with Her Majesty. The rendezvous was set for midnight. Jeanne and Nicolas hoped that the cover of pitch darkness would be enough to pull off the ruse. They were gambling everything on this. Creditors were breathing down their necks. If this plan failed, they would be ruined. From opposite sides of the garden, Jeanne and Nicolas watched the scenario play out with bated breath. Was it insane to think that a sex worker could pass for the Queen of France? Rohan saw a figure in the darkness, feminine and regal. He knelt at her feet in submission. Anxious to play her part well, Nicole all but threw the rose and the letter at him. Soon, the sounds of people approaching broke up the moment, and Rohan and the Queen quickly went their separate ways. Mission accomplished. That evening, Nicole, Nicolas and Jeanne went out and drank wine late into the night. 
They were on top of the world. But how long could their ruse possibly last? Could they really get away with using the Queen of France as a pawn? The answer was yes, but not for long. And certainly not without consequence. As the fate of the monarchy came into play, Jeanne and her co-conspirators were quite literally risking their necks. Thanks for listening to Con Artist. We'll be back next week with part two of Jeanne de Lamotte's story. We'll see Jeanne leverage forged letters from the Queen to make off with a necklace worth about $19 million today. Finally, we'll explore how the fallout from this massive con rocked French society to its very foundation. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Con Artists, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Con Artists on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Con Artist was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Con Artist was written by Noni Okwalagu. I'm Alastair Murden. Mm-hmm.